You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Michael. Andre, there's this great plate of charcuterie in front of me. There is. It's blocked by my computer screen, so I'll have to stand up to check it out. Which means you can't eat any of it. I guess. You can't eat what you can't see? I, I guess. <laughs> Where are we today? We're in the middle. Uh, we're not even in the middle. We're at the far end of a barrel cellar uh, for Vineland Estate, and we are lucky enough to be joined once again by Brian Schmidt, who this time, instead of doing a legacy series, is going to talk to us about the C word. Cabernet Franc. Yes, that is correct. Dang it. No, but we're continuing the, the series this year. I mean, I, to give the disclosure again, we have the swear jar. It's actually nice doing it with you, Brian, because you are the recipient of our swear jar for the work that you do I, in I am Haiti. not the recipient. The, the, right. the people of Haiti who uh, are, are very graciously accept your, your swears on you. <laughs> so if, if Brian swears a little extra this time, it just that's just what he's going to do. As, and is he going to drop the, uh, the big one? What is the big one? Uh, uh, the, the most... The worst one, oh, it's not a nice word for a lady's parts. Oh, all right. So that's. And, I, and none of us have said that yet this year. And No, I, and, and we'd have to talk to somebody who's either so is British. It's like, like, like a Scrabble thing. They're each, each one is worth the number. Yes. Okay, so one of, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite movies is Hot Fuzz. And there's a, 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 a scene, in, there's a few scenes in the movie that revolve around the swear jar that they have in the police station. And, you know, I've got a screenshot of it that they've assigned swear values to all the words. And the highest one on that one, because it's a British movie, is that, that C word that is not the other C word that I'm not allowed to say. Yeah, <laughs> that one's only worth five cents. But, yes. um, but he said it a lot. Like, how much have you owed for <sighs> saying the C word? Well, so far this year, you owe $16.25 because you say actual bad words. Yeah. I owe $31.90. <laughs> Uh, and like half of that is from times I've hijacked the podcast. Yes. So Andre's not allowed to, if, if somebody approaches us this year and says, we'd like to do a Chardonnay podcast and Andre says, yes, cause they will always approach Andre to do that. <laughs> and they will not approach me. <laughs> then if he says yes, then it is, is $3 and he can say the C word all he wants. And then if, um, if I go out and if, set it up, then I have to pay $5. <laughs> Yes. So. But I mean, we did an audit of last year's podcasts, and there were there was a lot of of Chardonnay content. I'm just I, I can't say c word one more time since we're talking about the other c word. Um, but we decided this year to focus on Cabernet Franc. I think we've done a pretty good job. It's been a little bit since we've done a full Franc episode, Correct. but uh, yes. I think in many people's eyes, you are the king of Cabernet Franc in in Niagara. He's, he's, I would say you're close. Yeah, Pilateria, it would also be there. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah but, 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 all about Cap Franc. But when I say I that, like, not necessarily, you know, the the just making great quality Cabernet Franc, but you're such a champ, a vocal champion yes. of why the grape belongs here, and we need more of that. So, really interesting segue. The um, in 1991, this the 2000 or 2021 will be my 30th, 30th. First vintage in Ontario. 31st. 31st vintage. I arrived here in 1991. And one of the very first wines that I had tasted, and it was at a Knives and Forks event. It was a fundraiser that was done at Cave Spring Vineyard. And 
Ed Gorinskis from uh, Lakeview Cellars, yep. if, uh, if everybody remembers yep. Ed. Uh, dear man, uh, I'll explain something a little bit later on. Um, Ed made this stunning, stunning Cabernet Franc. And me, relatively young at that point, had not tasted a red wine, a Canadian red wine, that had knocked my socks off like this wine. And in that moment, I vowed that that was going to be the grape that I committed myself to. And so in 1991, we continued to uh, explore other grape varieties. We had Pinot Noir in the ground. And at that time, Alan stepped away from winemaking. Uh, Probably a good thing. (laughs) I'm just saying. Okay, go on. And Alan said, you can do do whatever you want. If if Capronk is it, that's great. Go ahead and do it. Don't F with the Riesling. Do I have to pay for that? Nope. No, okay. you've got to actually say the word. Got it. And and so I didn't F with the Riesling, and we continued to focus on Cabernet Franc. So I can tell you that this has been a, a 31-year love affair with Cabernet Franc for me. Yeah, like it sounds like you took a vow of francitude. I did. I took a vow of francitude. Yeah. So every, uh, he comes down to the cellar. Okay, okay. So right, what's with these robes you, on? You guys, you guys both giggled at the at the Allen comment. I don't think I've ever tasted a wine made by Allen, but I know he made the wines before yeah. you. Was what was Allen just? Oh, we're gonna. Oh, suddenly we're gonna. Oh, wait a second. But okay, where's so, he going? J- just I gotta ask. Like, what what was the deal with Allen oh, as a winemaker? Uh, Allen, Allen was is, is a great winemaker. I I don't think I've ever tried an Allen wine either. I was yeah. just but so Allen, after thirty one years, our family winery in BC at Sumac Ridge. Uh, Alan was the winemaker there. Uh, after you guys have such similar handwriting, probably yeah. Like and so, he is also left-handed, and so he was making the wine. He came out here in 1988, completed the 1987 vintage for uh, the Vice family that owned the winery at that time. Our family had divested our interests in Sumac Ridge, and Vice was looking for somebody to come in and make the wine here. And through our relationship with the Vice family, we had known them since the mid 70s, and the the idea of Alan coming out to make the wine was just supposed to be five years. I'm only going to come out for five years, he said. And here he is now, 33 or 34 years later, hasn't, hasn't left and, and has married his, his bride and have children here. And so neither of us are leaving. He always thought that he would be going back. And uh, so when I came out in 1991, I had been a commercial scuba diver in BC for a, a number of years and, and realized it was more mortal than I thought it was. Came out in 91 and was just going to clear my head. I wanted to, do, to hang out here, help Alan with the harvest. It was an early harvest. And realized that this is where I needed to be. I needed to be back in our family business again. And so that was it. So 31 years later, here we are. Or 30 years later with my 31st vintage coming up. So the reason for the giggle, and Michael may not know this, but in 1990, it was a fantastic vintage for Ontario. Um, somewhat lean. The, the acidities were very, very high. And we were just developing a, a signature at Vineland Estates for Riesling. Um, Cave Spring was producing these amazing ones, and Henry Pelham was producing these amazing ones. And so in 1990, Alan produced a Riesling that had what was purported at the time to have over 10 grams per liter of acidity. And at that time, everybody thought that was crazy. It was insane. You can't make a wine with over 10 grams per liter. Tony Astler called him masochistic. And so... In 1997, we didn't we hadn't sold much of this wine because it was just so piercingly. And I thought, this is crazy. I'm going to measure it. So I actually titrated the acid, and I came up with just under 15 grams per liter. <laughs> wow. Alan had bottled this dry Riesling at 15 grams per liter of not residual sugar, but of acid. And so we, uh, we actually 
dumped some of the wine, we reblended it with some of the 97 vintage, and then rebottled it. And we re-released the wine, and it was kind of fun. We did that one. I don't know if I can dig one of those bottles out. So anyways, that that was one of Alan's final attempts at making wine with 15 grams per liter acidity. So if, so if Michael was trucking, that's what, uh, he just likes acid. <laughs> he was dropping acid, but not in uh, the, the 60s kind of way. That's insane. It was like a 90s kind of way. That's insane. <laughs> so so let's, let's, let's come back to come back to Franck now, and, and you've been the winemaker here for a long time. 31 mm-hmm. years, it seems. 30, 31st vintage this year. Yeah. Yep. So you have made Franck, obviously, in many different forms. What was your, I'm going to start with an easy question, your favorite year for Franck? <laughs> no, that's an easy question? question. That's yeah. an easy one. That should oh, yeah, be. That, that should be an easy one. Yeah. No, you're wrong. It's not an easy one. Or you can pick your top five. You can go back top five. I was, okay, top five. I can do that easily. Yeah. Uh, 1998, 2002, 2007, 2012, 2016, and now 2020. 20. Interesting. Okay. okay. So, so came up in no quick, order. Right? So, oh. so while you do you do handle Franck very well here in in cool vintages, um, you prefer hot, dry to work with. We we just find out that the there's a little bit more structure, a little bit more body, a little bit more weight. Cool vintages are fun to to, to do, but we've we've often found that those don't necessarily hold up in the barrel in the in the wine library that we're sitting in right now. Uh, they may not hold up quite as long. We're going to put that to the test in a little while. We have, yeah, yeah. We have a 2002 that we're going to try. But those warmer vintage typically do um, garner wines with a little bit more structure, a little bit more weight, and something that we would consider laying down and aging for a period of time. But in warmer vintage, especially with Cab Franc, you have to manage it properly. So, like, my love for Cab Franc truly comes from your general list cab franc that i remember being able to buy for 12.95 and to me that was one really great value because my wine cellar when it starts is you know i want to buy things under 10 and then slowly everything starts to creep up and you're like okay and then you get to 12.95 and i can i can you know afford that and and you and you buy it and you realize how good it is and then i have always stored some back vintages i think i still have a an 07 in the cellar and we have tried older vintages yes. of those 1295 wines and they've held up wonderfully well and that's yeah, and i think that's another reason why i fell in love with franc and not only that but your general list franc because like who buys a 1295 wine holds it for 10 12 years and it's still you know drinkable and good and was 1295 for well you, you really hit on on why i believe that the, the cabernet franc is sort of the bellwether for for ontario reds in that irrespective of vintage with the technology that we've embraced uh, as far back as 1996 with a and we can speak about that later um i have constantly been pushing the envelope in terms of producing great Cabernet Franc at that fighting varietal price because we know that most people cannot afford to buy a 30 or $40 bottle of wine and enjoy that on a regular basis. What we need to be able to do is get the, convince the hearts and minds of people that want to enjoy or buy purchase a bottle of wine to be able to have on a Tuesday night and have it be, and now it's it's fourteen ninety five at the LCBO. And I've spent a lot of time working on just how we can create the economies of scale to do that. And from a winemaking perspective, we've um, we've adapted and, and adopted some very interesting winemaking techniques that have gotten us to be able to participate in that 
sort of $15 price band and do it well and consistently well because nobody is going to be buying a wine from, from any winery in the world if only five out of ten vintages, it's okay, and the other five are really good. You have to have consistency year after year after year. And, Michael, it was actually you in 2006 uh, where you claimed that I threatened to break your thumbs based on a, a tasting that you had had from our 2006 vintage, which was... Not particularly a great year for anybody in Ontario. I recall saying the wine was just bottled. Give it some time. You went back and tasted it later on. Yeah, that sounds like Michael. And agreed that the wine was worthy of of the sort of the classic level designation. Yeah. And so, so in a vintage like 2006 and a vintage like 2011, 2019, we know that we can still make great wines, but we're going to have to rely pretty heavily on some technology that we've adapted uh, to do so. Yeah. I remember uh, having a conversation with you. I think it was after the 12 or the 10 vintage. And um, I, I remember because one of those vintage, well, obviously both vintages were one of what they considered a, a great vintage or a really good vintage here or a hot vintage because we're trying to get out of that good and bad uh, uh, nomenclature. Of course. Yes. Uh, we want to start talking about cool vintages versus hot vintages. Um, and I remember it flew off the shelf at the LCBO because everybody was saying it's, you know, I think at that point it was still twelve ninety five, And your problem was that being what the LCBO is, you have to fill that now void or lose that spot. Exactly, yeah. And uh, you had that conversation with me where you said we had to start changing some of our winemaking techniques to and uh, to bring the wine to make it more consistent exactly. year after year so that people don't go, you know, 2012 is great, go buy it. And now the 13 and people will buy it and they go, well, it's not the 12. And, you know, it sits on the shelf longer. So you you changed things around. To yeah. The vintage inconsistency is, is in part one of the reasons why Ontario wine consumers didn't necessarily trust Ontario Reds uh, in the early days. There was there was dramatic. Oh, I think there's still a bit of a stigma with Ontario Reds. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, and and quite honestly, um, it it was earned in the in the '90s and and maybe some of the early 2000s, and. I think that winemakers now have been able to grapple with with some of those inconsistencies and have, have been able to address it from not only a viticulture perspective but a winemaking perspective as well. And so we've we at Vineland Estates have, have invested pretty heavily in some technology, sorting technology, the optical sorter that we have is is my vintage variation disruptor. It is. It I still need to see that machine in in the works. I, I think I've, I've interviewed you and talked about that machine so many because I'm just so well, fascinated put out by so it. Many videos of it. I feel I've been there. So <laughs> you may have been. Well, we talk Talked about doing a uh, a podcast right right right, right, right on the on the um, yeah we'll get there we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get the, there the press room floor or whatever it is yeah. the, so but the simple things like machine harvesting machine harvesting is something that is is an absolute necessity for for wineries in Ontario now because we simply a can afford to to have all grapes hand harvested you're making wine now Andre you know exactly the expense in doing so but more importantly we just don't have the people available to go in and pick. 30 acres of, of grapes in a day, you're going to need hundreds of people to do that. And it's just not available. And so uh, machine harvesting has been become a necessity for most wineries in Ontario. And simultaneously, machine harvesting technologies have improved so exponentially in the last number of years uh, with the cleaning system, the cleaning technologies that are now on board these, these machine harvesters. The quality of grapes that are coming out of a vineyard now from a machine harvester is often better than that 
for which you could get with a uh, with hand harvesting the grapes. Interesting. Hmm. All you need now is one of those optical optical sorters, o- optical <sighs> machine harvester. And you know, yeah, oh, no, I don't want that. Take grape. care of two things at once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the technology for that doesn't quite exist yet. But the um, we don't want that grape. <laughs> yeah. So they, oh, they have, there's uh, air knives that will actually blow rachis out of the stream. They'll they'll blow berries that have been broken uh, because the air knife itself will travel around the circumference of a berry and leave it intact. But if the berry has been broken, it will actually capture the air. The broken berry will capture the air and it will get tossed out of the stream. And so, the, yeah, these um, knife, uh, air knife technologies and, and uh, roller sets that uh, take rachis and petioles out of the, uh, out of the, ma- the, the must. Do, do you ever face any, any criticism for the fact that you've um, embraced technology the way that you do? Because I know there's a, a really large movement in the wine world, um, especially when we're talking about ultra-premium wines, to do as little as possible, to do to, to everything by hand. And, yeah, you know. and, and I think that, that's a, that movement is fantastic, and, and we do a lot of those wines. Um, I, I probably have a reputation for being a bit of an envelope pusher, and, and we've beta tested so many different pieces of technology here over the years. Um, companies have actually, I, I had a fantastic week-long trip with a company called Vivalis through France that they had learned that I was sort of one of those innovative winemakers who was always wanting to uh, push the envelope, and they invited me to come to France, paid me to be in France for a week. Um, we had absolutely amazing wines, but what we did every morning and every afternoon, we would we would learn about new technology that they were developing. We would go to a winery where they had applied that technology. We would talk about it, and we would try to understand whether or not it would be suitable for world distribution of these technologies. And so, so yeah, I, I've, I've been recognized as that, and um, I, I'm quite proud of it. I think there's probably some people that, that are, are a little bit leery about how much technology I do embrace. However... Um, the wine industry is probably one of the only industries in the world that actually embraces de-evolving. Um, we've, I would agree with that. I would yeah. agree with that as well. And, what and, is pet net? Michael? <laughs> okay, Michael, that's, we already, we already talked about that. <laughs> My God. And so, so with, with that in mind though, I think there really is a place for non-intervention wines. And, and as I said, we, we make a lot of them, but it just so happens that if you're going to be able to compete in a marketplace, especially in the LCBO where you have wines from all over the world that are at a, at a, price point that makes it incredibly difficult for a winery to be profitable, you have to embrace technology in order to be able to compete in that marketplace. And so we've been able to do that with the generalist wines, but our reserve wines and wines that we produce for our wine club exclusive uh, wines, those are all really, really interesting non-intervention wines that we use. Um, we have the M4 in our barrel cellar. I walked by those. Yeah. Which is which is the step back, too. Right? It, it really is. And it harkens back to a, to an earlier day. And, and so I, I respect both technology or both methods. And I think that you it's, it's not a zero-sum game. You can be both. So when you're making your Cabernet Franc, sorry, I think I'm... I'm if, was it your question or mine? I was going to tell him to pour some wine. That's oh. what my first thing was going to be, and then we can ask because sure. it's I, you know, there I'm, I'm staring at them across the room, and I'm like, I I've got to try something. I, I I've been so, waiting all day for this. 2017 Generalist Cab Franc. So uh, obviously the Miracle Vintage. The Miracle Vintage. Yes, everybody was was. I'm still lamenting. stunned. I'm still stuck because like, like for me the the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay from those vintages were just like the most intense things I've ever tasted out of Niagara and even revisiting them in an earlier podcast was that double down. But when the Bordeaux varietals started to come out, when the Cabernet Franc started to come out, it was just like, how did this happen? Yeah. Like when, when was, did you harvest it that? This? It was that the, the fall weather turn mid early, early October, everything switched. 
warmed up, everything dried up and, uh, and ripened up. And so it was a big vintage. It was a huge, huge, huge vintage in terms of the volume of grapes produced in Ontario. I think we, we were over 85,000 tons of grapes grown in Ontario in that year, which was a record to date, if I'm not mistaken. So it beats the, what was it, 13 or 2013, yeah. yeah which two, was the biggest one. But yeah, now it's 17 has beat that. 17 had, beat, had beaten that one as well. And so, again understanding that in a year like 2017 where the vineyards are going to be producing relatively high volumes um, and the, because we source grapes for our general list from around the peninsula, it's a really good indicator of the, the quality of the vintage in general because we draw from five or six different vineyards on the bench, uh, in Lincoln Lakeshore, in uh, Niagara Lake. Wow. So, so it really gives you a, a solid indication of the potential for the vintage at that $15 price point. And so I know that some growers in 17 were delivering us, us fruit from vineyards where they were probably in excess of eight or nine tons per acre. So this, this uh, 17, obviously off the shelf now, it's long, long, long gone. gone. Yeah. And it was the, uh, I'm looking at the bottles and I'm thinking, that's the last one you've put under cork. It is the last one. We- but you were the last of the cork dorks. And I think, I think the very last is like Derek Barnett. Like I've, he's finally started putting his Sauvignon Blanc and his, and his rosés. Uh, but it was, it was 2019 before he embraced uh, screw cap. You are slightly ahead of that time. So it, it took the technology to uh, adapt and change to a point at which I was comfortable with wines going under screw cap. The, um, the technologies now for the liners that are on the underside of those screw caps where they can be embedded with oxygen, you can actually capture uh, and, and the wines will, will age or evolve to a certain extent based on the, the, uh, the method of, of liner the type of liner that is is in the bottom of those. And so it was around that vintage that uh, we began to see and understand the potential for screw caps. So I was able to, to wrap my head around. around what was what was the, just that the wines were inert prior? I just, I just found, yeah, they, they were too inert and the wines were not evolving. And I found that all too often I would taste a red um, and it would become very, the, the, the H2S notes. So you would be getting kind of the rotten egg smell. And, oh. Yeah, they would become there. fairly reductive, and and then one. But one of the biggest issues that I had with that was winemakers were prophylactically needing to add copper to wines prior to them going into the bottle in order to be able to to mitigate the potential for reduction. And I have a I have a real fundamental problem with the addition of copper in wines. Copper is a heavy metal, and your body can't get rid of it. We, we're looking at at some vineyards in in Europe right now where they've been applying copper into the vineyards uh, as a spray. The Bordeaux blend they call it the um, sulfur, um, lime, and and uh, and copper. And that spray has been used for generations, for decades, centuries, and the soils are now becoming toxic because there's so much heavy metals in those soils, and you cannot get rid of heavy metal, and your body cannot get rid of heavy metals as well. And so the addition of, of uh, copper to wines, I had a real fundamental problem with it, and so I would not allow myself to add copper to the wines just as a prophylactic to, in the hopes that the wine would not become reductive. But when this, the technology for the screw cap changed, I felt comfortable with putting wine under a screw cap. I, I never expected that in 2021 we would do two recording sessions in a week where we would end up talking at length about closures. Well, I, I don't want to talk at length about closure. but I, what Why? I, it's what fascinating. I, what I do want to say is that you know your wines were aging really well under, under cork to begin with, so now you've added that extra dimension of a screw cap, which is, 
hermetic in a way, but also allows it to age because I've, I've tasted so many wines under screw cap that I think are, are supposed to be dead in my wine cellar and that I paid, you know, tuppence for. And, and they turn out to be so beautiful and you're like, wow, you know, you really appreciate, you know, where screw cap, you know, it was, is going and what it, how it helps the wine. And I, and I, I haven't tried your wines in a screw cap, but I uh, or aged ones because we really don't have that. It's not. It's yeah. three years, right? It's not like a big deal at the moment. But it, it'd be interesting to see your 18s, your 19s, your 20s in 10, in 10, 20 years, years yeah. and see you know how better they aged, and I think they will age better, more gracefully, and be drinkable. A so lot you've just celebrated your 200th podcast, 250th, 250th. We've been podcast. doing this five okay. years for God's yeah. sake, so, and you've appeared so only you twice. Guys, <laughs> what the so, hell? So you guys, in uh, when you're celebrating your 750th podcast, <laughs> then we'll be able to taste some of these. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So <laughs> 2017, is, has, uh, it's it's barely evolved. Like It's, it's barely still evolved. vibrant and fruity. And I get a lot of that tobacco, though. There's still a lot of that lovely oh, tobacco I, essence going. I got a really, really distinct and specific uh, tasting note. Like right through the mid that hit through, it's like it's vibrant cherry on the nose. But when it's rolled off the back of my tongue, it was like tootsie roll. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But I got I got a lot of that tobacco, that raspberry. That, that's all the stuff that's supposed to be be cab franc. It's pretty textbook as as far as as cab franc goes. But, it's, but it's, it doesn't feel like it has aged much, and we're, we're and doesn't feel like a cool vintage. Like twenty seventeen was rainy, wet. Like I, I remember second week of September, looking at Pinot Noir. It was at twelve bricks from the vineyard we were working with, and it was just like I have no idea. Well, you guys must have been feeling. How many acres do you farm? One hundred and twenty. I, I can't imagine what you'd feel like to go check your vineyards and see sugar levels that low the second week in September and yeah. looking at the watch, looking at the calendar and figuring out what's going to happen next and then the sun coming out, you know? Yeah. But then but then to take it and, and take uh, the Franc, which is a later ripening, it's not the latest, but yeah, later Cap ripening. Yeah, is usually about 10 days to two weeks later than Cap Franc. Cap Franc is kind of middle of the pack. Yep. And... Yeah, so in that, yeah, you're absolutely correct. In that year, it was definitely a nail biter, and and we were, uh, we were incredibly concerned that uh, the, the fruit itself was just not going to ripen. I I have a bit of an advantage though, and I'm going to use it. I don't know if I'm allowed to, how many times I'm allowed to say it, but with the optical sorter, I can dial that thing up. I can put that in as the swear jar for, <laughs> for, uh, for Brian. So optical sorter. So a really good a really good example. That optical sorter, when Two. it's dialed up. It can remove as much as thirty percent of the grapes. Mm-hmm. Now it slows right down, but we can we can remove as much as thirty percent of the underripe grapes. So in vintages like two thousand seventeen, we were taking out somewhere between twelve and fifteen. 20, That's not too maybe bad. Maybe twenty percent of the grapes in order to be able to create the harmony that we're wanting in terms of the bricks that we're getting in the resulting wines and and minimizing those green pyrazine aromas. Twenty nineteen, I was taking out twenty five and thirty percent. I can imagine that. Oh, twenty nineteen. So, oh yeah. So, hence why I say that with this, the OS. Can I call it up? I'll just call it up to order and up. Three. That's no, fine. I'll pay for it again. Um, <laughs> and so, so with this, it, it really helps us with those vintage variations. So, I was not as concerned as most would have been because I had, I had this little arrow in my quiver that I was going to be able to use. And so, so one of the reasons that we really got um, interested in talking to you about Cab Franc, and, and, and what we've done here is, is we've, we're looking at, uh, if I'm not mistaken, looking at the labels because they're across the table from me. Um, 
it's all your generalist stuff that we are looking at. It is indeed. And and one of the, the things I guess we should we I think what Brian has done here is he's forced us to come back in 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 the way because I remember when we first started talking about Cab Franc and, and what we were gonna do with you is talk about those single vineyards and how you were going to start looking at various uh areas around Niagara and how Cap Franc does in these vineyards. So uh, you are still doing that single vineyard series. And how many vineyards are you up to at the moment? So 2016, we did eight different vineyards. 2017, we did nine different vineyards. Uh, 2018 and 19, we had to dial it back a little bit. Uh, two of the vineyards that we had sourced had actually sold, and they wouldn't wouldn't sell okay. us the grapes anymore. And so I'm still, for me, that is still an ongoing mission. Okay, so it's uh, and and so gonna, nine is the is the capper. Nine is the cap, and that's an 18. You said 17. 17. Yeah. So when are those wines available? Uh, we haven't the released general. them yet. They're still they're still sitting in our uh, henceforth why we are tasting these and then when you do release those you got to let us know we're going to come back we're going to taste them and then we're really going to go this is a this is a continuation from the the boutique no so the boutique is part of it however the the vineyard series one of them yeah we've got van Van beers is actually one that sold so i can't source oh oh, no unfortunately one of my yeah one of my favorite vineyards so what we did is that we took cabernet franc we identified the clone. We identified the terroir based on the uh, subappellation, and we harmonized all of the winemaking processes. So we we used the exact same yeast. We used the exact same fermentation techniques. We used the exact same time on skins. The exact same time in barrel. Everything. The, the all of the winemaking processes were uh, the same for each wine. So we minimized winemaker influence. The only thing that we did was honor the vineyard and pick the grapes when we felt that they were ripe. So the ripeness levels were different with each of them. And that is the only variation that we have with all of those wines. Every other decision was uh, was done in harmony with each other. See, so that's why we got to come and, and taste the nine when they're finally bottled and just, just go through the, the total geek aspect yeah, of, of, of you know where it's from. And we should somehow, I think, what we've got to do and we'll have to, you know, mark this somewhere. Is get a map as the picture of the podcast. Great idea. And we've got to put like a pin, a pin on each, all the vineyards, each with the vineyards, so you, people can see where the vineyards are from. It's kind of like um, what Thomas does with uh, with Pinot and Chardonnay. I think I think it's I think it's critical. I think it's a project like that is critical to helping to evol- to uh, elevate. Uh, Cabernet Franc well, on the it, level that it needs to be. helps unravel the mystery, right? So yeah. we've, we've all, we, we spent a lot of time talking about subappellations. We've spent a lot of time, we've invested a lot of energy in the region to demonstrate to consumers that subappellation means something. And now we have to show them that it actually translates into a difference. And so not that Cabernet Franc from one appellation is better than the other. The, the, the goal is not to... to um, we're not trying to do, yeah. It, the, the goal is to understand the nuances of each of the sub-appellations. I mean, that's it. If you continue with the, continue with the, this project as well, like you're, you're, that's where you're going to learn. And, exactly. and, and it's going to be different with every consumer. There's some who are going to gravitate more towards certain things, but I think also as a business person, it'll give you a better understanding of what your consumers want. It will. And the, the genesis of the project was not necessarily from a consumer's perspective. It was more from knowledge that I, that I would be able to gain. And I could in then impart that knowledge on our growers and have them. So we had them come in and taste all the wines and I gave them wines and I gave them a collection of all of the other wines from the other growers and, and said, let's talk about your, your practices. What did you do in your vineyard in order to be able to achieve this? And is it, is there something transferable to another 
their grower that they might see as being valuable based on the wine that they taste. Okay, so we've got the 19. Oh, yours, is, yours is empty. This is the, this is the 18. Uh, nope. 18. Unless you pour the 19. Oh, I did. I poured the 19. You know what? I thought, I thought you were, Sorry, I thought you were pulling a, a, fast, a fast one on us. But, uh, no, no. Let's talk about the 19. Talk about the 19. Let's talk about then the 19. Then go back to the 18? Then go back to the 18. All right. Like, I, I, Sorry about that. And I'm finding this like... The fact that you were surprised that like, the level of consistency is, is there where yes. you couldn't tell the difference because 2018 was a hot summer and 2019 Well, was. I, I, see, the, the, the thing that I was going with, I was, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Like, oh... Well, that's a nice 18. <laughs> it was that moment. I was like, oh, that's a nice 18. Well, you but, were on the nose. But like, 19, I was getting the, the tobacco on the... It was tobacco. This one's super juicy, though. Like, it's really got a nice juiciness in the... There's a cherry raspberry yeah. kind oh, of mix Oh, it smells like Saskatoon it. berries to me. Like, it's so, just lovely. This one's great. And that's why I was saying, wow, that's yeah, a so I, I have to ask, uh, how much does storm cost me? Um, is that in there? Is that... So, well, that's um, the first word that'll do, yeah. But it's 50 cents. 50 cents. Add it up. <laughs> So 2019 An optical a, sorter for him. So he's already got three optical Yeah, I'm going to toss him a nickel for that. Actually, he's up to um, five optical so, sorters. Unless he wants to throw a dollar in for optical sorter, then he can say it all he wants. You got it. <laughs> a buck. It's a dollar. So 2019 was, was literally a storm for us. It, yeah. was, it was, by all measure, one, one of the most difficult vintages that I had to endure. When, when we looked at some of the grapes that were in the vineyard themselves... And you're talking about ripeness levels that we were not achieving um, VQA minimum by kind of the October. We were starting to panic and wondering just how we're going to be able to to make wine out of this. It was a really, really difficult vintage. I'm not going to sugarcoat that at all. And so, again, like 2017, the, the fall came Everything started to turn around a little bit. Things dried up. The grapes began to ripen a little bit. We had some early frost signs, if you recall, uh, that ended up remaining at the ground level. So we still had leaves that were continuing to, to ripen the fruit. So it was not like a miracle vintage like 2017, but but by the end of October, we were breathing a little, uh, a little sigh of relief. But interesting to note, the 2019... That's the 19th. Um, was if we want to talk about technology again we had a a gentleman who purchased something called flash detente have you ever heard of a flash detente flash detente is a vacuum chamber that allows the grapes to be warmed up they warm up to about 75 or 80 degrees they pass through this vacuum chamber and virtually explode and at the same time that they explode, that explosion is releasing all of the pyrazines. And so all of the pyrazines come out in a retentate and a concentrate, and it's this, this stream of liquid that's just shooting out of the, the opposite end of the machine. So we were able to use technology again in 2019. So is that another machine that you own? Or? We do not own it. I was trialing the machine at that time. Somebody, somebody brought it in, and we stationed it here. I had winemakers coming in and I, out. I had heard about that machine. Uh, we, we had... Oh, probably Did, 15 or 20 different wineries that brought their grapes to us. Was David Stasiak one of them? Yeah, David, well, David, David actually ran it at the time. He's with Nuance. Uh, okay, Nuance that sounds about right. No. I, like, so, I, knew, I knew I'd heard about that machine somewhere. Yeah, and so the, um, this flash detente unit that is um, just considered a, a, like a vacuum chamber was 
a literal game changer for us as well. We were able to take all of those pyrazine notes. And if you had smelled what's called the retentate, the liquid that is drawn off as a condensate through this process, it smelled rank. Yeah. And and the, the green pyrazine notes, it was like bell pepper times 10. Oh, so it smelled and like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. It was, it was literally New Zealand. We should have added it to our Sauvignon Blanc. So, so that particular technology we were able to employ in an incredibly difficult vintage and make yet again a wine that consumers are enjoying and loving this wine. It's, it's fantastic for $14.95. So, so you've, you've talked a lot about, or in, sort of in passing so far, uh, you've mentioned pyrazine. Mm-hmm. Um, you're very anti-pyrazine in no, Cabernet Franc? No, not anti-pyrazine at all. No, no, but in Cabernet Franc, in Cabernet Franc. Nope. No, I'm not. I, I, okay. In fact, I appreciate a small amount of pyrazine. It, I would go with that. But, but at some point, Ontario was all about, we got to get more in there. I remember 2000. Really? Oh, really? In 2002, we, all, we had tons of pyrazine in there, and it seems like everybody wanted that. That sounds they like could, a bad idea. They could smell green pepper, and everybody like, oh, this smells like green pepper. I love it. Yeah. And thankfully, no. we were starting to, you know, uh, since then, we've started to back away from, you know, making our wine smell like a salad. Yeah. Almost every effort and every technology that we employ is to reduce pyrazines. Okay. No, so I, I remember I remember smelling it like a lot in, in Cabernet Francs in 2002, and it was like... That's it's. it's so you think to me that was a, a a hallmark of Ontario at that point. I, I know for me it was it was vintage variation. Like like the '08s and the '09s would have been the first Cabernet Francs that I a fell in love with, but b vividly remember. And I remember certain places with the '08s and '09s really really smelling like green pepper. Vintages, so white vintages, yeah. '08, '09, '06. Yeah. The so. The challenge that most wineries have is, again, that whole method of harvesting. So hand harvesting is would be the ideal preferred method if you don't have a, a machine like an optical sorter. I think I'll pay more. <laughs> but um, And so in vintages like 2006 and 2008, if you've machine harvested your grapes for the economies of scale, because it is significantly less expensive to harvest your grapes with a machine than by hand, and if you're in that fighting varietal category, you cannot afford to pay $400 a ton to pick your grapes. It just doesn't work. And so machine harvesting is non-selective. And in those years, the machines that were being used to harvest grapes were, were brutal. And they would knock the rachis and the petioles off, and that would all become part of the fermentation mass. And so I was... For a long time, taking grapes, dumping them onto a sorting table, and we were pulling out every piece of petiole that we could possibly get and still maintain some sort of speed of processing that, that wouldn't hold us up at one ton per hour or something. So so we were getting most of the petioles out. And once those petioles, if you've ever had a chance to taste the, the rachis, the piece of stem that the berries are attached to, or the petioles is the, the, the piece that the leaf is attached to on the vine, if you've ever tasted one of those you would instantly know what bad franc ca- or bad cab franc tastes like because the, those those pyrazines inside of these rachis and petioles are so bitter, so astringent, they are just disgusting. And so alcohol being such a wonderful solvent that it is, after the grapes go into the fermentation mass, they begin to convert sugar to, sugar to alcohol, and they extract all of these green tannins that are present in the mog material other than grapes. And so for those years... We were working really hard to try to gain the economies of scale to be able to produce a fighting varietal at at $15 a bottle, but we could not get past that one technological barrier of getting rid of the petioles and rachis. And so harvesting technologies have changed. We now have other technologies on the crush pad that we use that you're going to come and visit. And so that, that really was the defining moment where the moment we were able to get 
machine harvested grapes with redu- reduced amounts of petioles and rachis, we were winning as an industry. I don't know. You're you're blown away. So yeah. Let it just tell them to pour the eighteen and just let's. Yeah. <laughs> just as I as I look at your face, you have like nothing to say. But no, that nineteen was was, was was really lovely. So that really explains lovely. explains why. But as I said, I was like, oh, that's a nice eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm about to taste the eighteen, and uh, don't, nobody look at my face just in case I I have to you have to mask something here. Oh, See, there there is vintage variation between your wines. I mean, the seventeen and the nineteen smelled. Similar. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with cool, like the acid was really there on the nose, and this is, this smells like hot summer to me. Mm-hmm. So I know the fall. Going, I know the yeah, fall was so, more challenging. So all but. we're doing is mitigating vintage variation. We're reducing the the swings. If you if you think of it as sort of a diurnal shift between high temperatures and low temperatures in day. Yum. Yep. So the, that is that is spectacular. So where I thought the nineteen was a nice, well-rounded, easy drinking wine, the eighteen does, as Andre said, has a little bit of that hot vintage because there is a little bit of a like a gritty mm-hmm. uh, black tea kind of note right at the end that hits your tongue, and you're like, okay, so it needs a little bit of time to hopefully, you know, get rid of that that little. Oh bit of grit. It's like a chocolate-covered cherry. Yeah, and though. I am going to add one caveat to the 19. That was just recently bottled as well. Okay. Um, and so that's going to take a little bit of time to iron itself out and, and smooth out some of the rough, rough edges. Um, and this 18's got some cellar potential, too. Yeah, yeah the, the it 18, it, it, it's just a stunning, stunning wine. I, I drank copious amounts of the 18. I could imagine. Put a little chill on that to bring the fruit up. Yeah. Probably drop those that little bit of grit out of it. Yeah, would yeah. That's still uh, I don't know if I if I had a dollar for every time I said that, I'm I'm always surprised at the quality of these wines at the price. I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised at this point. Like I've been drinking your wines for over a decade. At especially this point. especially those under you know now it's under fifteen. But I mean, at thirteen dollars a bottle, that was. Uh, like I, I often went. That's stupid, but I'm not telling him that. <laughs> okay, but even, even, even. Okay, but let, let's. Well, if if I was ever criticized, I would tell you that I have been criticized by other wine winemakers and other winery owners that um, we were in fact selling our wine too inexpensively, in that it it held back the elevation of price as a as an industry standard to be able to kind of move other wineries up into higher price points. I, I was definitely criticized for that. That same people would be saying you were not selling this wine for enough money. And I, I was both tickled and happy about that, but vexed in that we were causing a bit of a problem for, for some of the our fellow winemakers in the in the area when trying to compete in the LCBO at that fifteen dollar price band was our primary objective. We, we, we wanted to be able to, to deliver consistent quality and value in that. Yeah, and in, in Ontario wine, which always gets, uh, which always gets uh, accosted, I guess, or accused of being too expensive. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's I, it. When I, when I started... Point to, to, you go, well, how's $15 for you? And that's it. When, when I did, started doing my, uh, my radio segment in 2010, so 10 years ago, and I was reviewing your wines, Chateau des Charmes, Trius, like the $15, that the stuff that was accessible, I would get phone calls and text messages from listeners saying that the wines were too expensive. And I, I think it's just, you know, Niagara's a premium wine region. That's where we, we start. It's where we have to start. And I mean, for you as a winemaker, your benchmark for quality has to start at the premium level or you're not making any money. We can't do $8 
Pinot Grigio here. It just it's not feasible. It's not economical. Well, and especially now that we're we're all moving into a sustainable environment. So we just re- recently received received our uh, sustainability certification through uh, OCW, the Ontario Craft Wineries, uh, one of twelve wineries in Ontario to do that. And that, that was a, a, an arduous process. It took, took us a long time to get there. We had to switch a lot of our, pro, our procedures. And it, it's, it's incredibly expensive to grow wine sustainably. We are now herbicide-free. That is, the, the resources it takes to grow vineyards that are herbicide-free is, is unbelievable. And so when you add all of those expenses into the product that you're delivering on the store shelves, where consumers' expectations are that you are not only uh, you're a good corporate citizen, you're sustainable, you're delivering value, uh, you're, you're paying all of your workers a living wage, and oh, by the way, I still only want to pay $12 a bottle. Yeah, it's exactly. impossible. Yep. Yeah, and, that's, and that becomes the problem with with Ontario wine. I don't, I don't see why uh, people say that it's expensive when when we have wines like this. Well, I think there's a. And I, under- I understand, like you know, people like uh, let's go Taz. They they tried to raise the bar right away. They came out of the gate with you know twenty nine, thirty, forty dollars wines uh, as as their low end. Yeah. Uh, but you're also dealing it. with a producer that's not producing it on a, on a large scale. I think the challenge that exists Taz when you a large large Taz is not a large scale when they started oh, with when those started, batches no. yes. and, and no, with but, those but, batches but, coming in. But, that? but here's yeah, but here's the thing with with somebody like Taz, and I think every every winery does learn this as they go uh, because if you look at any winery that has started out with wines that are thirty, forty, fifty dollars. Sooner or later, give them two years, give them four years, give them five years of knocking their head against the wall. Sooner or later, they come out with an under twenty dollar bottle. Yeah, that it, well, it's inevitable for sure. Um, the the pool of fish willing to to spend that kind of money is a lot smaller than people yeah. realize. And, and 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 value is one of those things that we have to con- consider. That value isn't just a fifteen dollar bottle of wine. There's, totally, there are some great values at, of, of Ontario wines that are fifty dollars a bottle, seventy five dollars a bottle. You look at what. And then Isel is, is doing it. Exactly. His, his wines are stunning and worth every penny. Two yep. sisters' wines, stunning, yep. worth every penny. And so they are delivering value in that price bracket. Correct. But even even two sisters says now yeah. I think they have a twenty dollars. So has yeah, they, so they, has they, Isellers. Isellers. Yeah, they, they, they've all had to dial it back, and it, it is inevitable. Yeah. You realize that that playing in those stratospheric prices, you're not moving volume for sure because there's just not a critical mass of people that are willing to pin, spend that amount of money for wines. When you also have this sea of other wines that are available on your on your doorstep, and it's tough with no reputation yeah. to yeah. command a price like that. It takes a while to build yeah. build but, that. But club. we are building a reputation when guys like Adnan are producing these stunning wines. Yeah. You've got yes. Gerald Teal who just who won top of show at some something or I forget what it was. I think that's uh, every year, but I mean that's just <laughs> well. Bed. So, but but that helps us every time somebody. Um, wins one of those competitions or garners that kind of attention, it begins to break that glass ceiling for us. And and every time we begin to move, so so to, the, to fairness to the to the award that that Harold won, I do want to just point this out that he was he touted it as he was like the top wine. And look, to get one of these awards is a big deal, but he was one of the top 100 wines. Mm-hmm. He was not the top wine. He was one of the top 
100 wines of the competition. Okay, which is still, still a big good. deal. Still, no, still, still a big, a big deal. deal. <laughs> but he really had pushed it as he had won the whole thing. Right. Holy like he smoke. Didn't, he didn't take the Stanley Cup So home. are you saying that social he, media was in, inaccurate? Oh, my gosh. All I'm saying is he made the playoffs. That's what happened. That's but, awesome. uh, you know, and it, but if you think of, now the, the NHL is, what, 32 teams? And, like, half of them make the playoffs. If you imagine, oh come how, on, Michael! If, but if you imagine how many wineries there are in the world to make <sighs> the playoffs of the top 100, that's a bigger deal. Because okay, there are a lot and, more. But, but okay. more importantly, it's also important. I was waiting to, to see where you were going with that. I'm, it, just, I'm just saying it's, it's a bigger deal because there's more teams playing. Yeah, it's important to note though. Ontario has been win- winning awards for decades. Mm-hmm. More often than not, we were winning awards for ice wines because those are those impactful yep. wines that that nobody else in the world makes. And so we garnered all of this attention for that. Now we're beginning to see much less focus on ice wine and table wines. Much stunning, to, stunning table wines. Much to Donald Zoraldo's sugar disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sugar um, so, so, so you're beginning to see a shift of, of attention, which, which I is think good. is absolutely I think it's, fantastic. I, 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 you and I have had the conversation where we should have, you know, put a foot forward with Cabernet Franc as well yeah. and, and shown that to the world, you know. When, when we were showing off our ice wines, we should have said, sir, you want a pallet of ice wine? Well, you're taking a half a pallet of uh, Chardonnay Pinot and, and Cab Franc. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's how you're going to get and that's how the world this works. stuff, if, if right? You, if you want that that top chateau from from Bordeaux, you got to buy a bunch of stuff from their lower their lower yeah. end as well. We'll and give you three bottles if you buy ten bottles of that. And that's what we, <sighs> that's what we should have done, and we just didn't. We just were happy to send yeah. off ice wine willy nilly, and yeah. Well, but were the, was the quality quite, of the table frankly, wines? Where we we needed the money, we needed to sell. So well, I guess so. Yes, Ernest, so. Ernest and Julio Gallo used to have a saying that said, "We will sell no wine before it's time." Well, they sold lots of wine before. It was we time. we changed that here. <laughs> Certainly in Vineland Estates, the bank called. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you just poured the uh, 2020. 2020. So, so this is interesting. I, I told you that the 2019 was just bottled, as is the 2020. A, a pandemic uh, revelation. We actually held back a bunch of wines. Um, for cash flow, talking about the bank called. Um, we held back a bunch of wines that we did not bottle last year that we held in tank and bottled up this year just because we didn't know what was going to happen with the pandemic and, and COVID. And so we had a, we've had a huge rush of bottling. We have bottled literally tens of thousands of cases of wine in the last four months. Um, and a lot of that is still from 2019. That we remained in the cellar. So, the so, so when I told you that these the nineteen was just bottled, as is the, the twenty. So the 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 t- twenty is is uh, a, a much different wine. Obviously. It's juicy. It's juicy. But, with it's, a capital but it's got some. You know, it's got some rugged tannins that are in there that is going to make this wine age. Oh. I would love to see this. And wine they're in mocha. Twenty years. Like yeah, they're mocha is. tannins. Like it's it's it. I said the the nineteen tasted like chocolate covered cherries. Like this tastes like. Chocolate covered cherries on steroids, but it's, so but one, it's a bittersweet. It's a bittersweet. This wine chocolate. has not been VQA'd. Um, as I said, we've just bottled it. I wanted to have it here for you guys to taste. It's not okay. available the 2020. So when this airs, people might be saying, "How can I get the 2020?" It's not available. They'll have yet. to wait. Keep your eye open Keep for it because this yes. is this is one of those wines that you're going to and because it's under screw cap, you're going to put it in your cellar. 
I would buy it by the case, if not two, and just you it's know, stunning. Slowly it's start, stunning. you know, slowly bring it out of your cellar every six months because this is just gonna. Just I think that's apart. a that's a smart buying decision right there. Because it, I mean, when I first when I first started buying wine and I wanted to see how wine evolved, I bought it. Uh, for lack of a better term, I bought a cheap bottle. It was Gato Negro, which is what I you know at that point I think it was seven, ten seven, seven something. Yeah, I and I bought a case of it, and every six months I would open it. Now. What I also learned was plastic corks are the worst thing in the uh, in the whole damn world. They used to. I'm still not convinced. Normal cork has done a really good job. <laughs> and if, if if one thing that screw caps have done is that they have forced every other closure to up their game. Yes, I believe cork has done. DM has done a, a fabulous job. I'm still not convinced on plastic, but uh, you know it's it's. If it's evolving, we'll see. I just had a conversation with an Italian producer on social media, and I because I had reviewed their wine, and they said, "Drink this now because it's under plastic." And they gave me this long diatribe of why it's going to evolve. And it's, and it's fine. I, I I appreciate the skepticism because often when those notes come back, it's a copy of the brochure from the manufacturer of the cork. Yeah. yeah. So he was telling me how you know it's going to evolve and how it's going to do this and how it's going to do that, and um, you know I. I I remain very skeptical about plastic, whereas I am not skeptical about uh, uh, screw cap. And I, you're also I, a curmudgeon who doesn't like change. I don't, I'm also not. Uh, I'm not skeptical about the DM corks. I I, I believe. And Actually, I believe that's, in that's fair. Well, I mean, I, I think there's something different about DM and, and let's face it, it's marketing. But they're putting their money where their mouth is by by putting an age statement on their corks. That as a business owner, should I choose to buy those corks? You know, it's it's a little bit of peace of mind. And so the this, people who are using the products are also people you, yeah. you want to be associated with. So they've done a really good job marketing the product. Let's hope that you know the DM20s that you're seeing in some bottles of Burgundy will hold up 20 years from now. So now we're about to open our last so bottle of wine. So 20 years from we're, now. We are going, oh, that's we a are good going segue. To, we are if, going to close the podcast with this particular if, bottle. If you had asked yourself, what does a 20-year-old Cabernet Franc taste like in 2002... You would fast forward in your go forward machine, and here would be your answer: twenty. And this would have uh, two thousand and two. Now was this this twelve ninety five or was it less? Twelve ninety five in two thousand and two. Okay, so. I still love the the old labels with the um, the artwork on it. It's just a classic shape, and I just I love seeing your old labels. It was such such great design, and it's it's stood up so well. Yeah. Now I know Andre's not a huge fan of old wine. We've already we've already established that. I think so. Years now ago this was now. just open. It's going to need two three minutes to open up. Swirl it in your glass. Capture that. My sense is it's probably going to fade within pretty quick. Five or ten minutes. Yeah. So you've you've got to find that sweet spot. But I mean, we got a really nice foresty floor note. Uh, we've got. We've what was the vintage like in O2? Was that hot? O2 hot? was, was a, a hot year. Yeah. I, I believe that I added O2 in my list of greatest years. Yeah. yeah. O2, and 05, yeah. 07, 10, 12, 16, 16, 15, 15, because, but it was, 15 everybody was always forgets. It was a short crop, yeah. but I think 15 is one of those underrated vintages. Yeah, we just it, sold out of our uh, Cap Franc Reserve in 15. It broke my heart. Yeah, so so 15 is a great year, but everybody thinks, you know, they, they all, because. 15 got lost because 16 was so good. Yeah. But 15 was such a yeah, – and it's rare that we get two vintages that are back-to-back good. But because of those winters, we really yeah, got sh- – Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we've got it coming now, 2020 and 2021. Two great years. Shh, don't – why did you say oh, that? Sorry. Now? Oh, my God.
God. It's like seeing seeing so this, Macbeth in a theater. There you go. Or like he's going to hit a pitch, a no-hitter in the seventh. <laughs> uh, or, or, oh, look, it's going to be a shutout with two minutes okay, to go. Okay, so like, you're full disc- we're recording this the first week of, of August. Are, are we at the point where, with all the rain that we've had this summer, disease pressure is really a problem? or is it- uh, Disease pressure has been a problem, for sure. Okay. Um, we have been on it. I know that uh, most vineyards have been... Um, very vigilant, uh, vigilant and, and diligent. One of the things that was a, a big thing for us this year was leaf removal. Um, if you got your leaves off early, you won. And uh, in order to be able to get the humidity out of the canopy, in order to be able to get air movement through there, one of the challenges that we've had has been all the weeds. So if grow, these vines are growing like weeds, literally, and the weeds are growing like weeds. And in a year that, that we're three years now herbicide free, um, this year has been the biggest challenge by far of, of any year that we've ever been able to do this. And so we're, we're constantly, constantly going. And the, the reason why you don't want to have weeds under your canopy in a year like this is about trapping humidity. If if you have if the floor of your vineyard is is laden with weeds and grasses and, and whatnot, that's going to capture the humidity early in the morning and it's going to dissipate throughout the day and create a humid environment inside of your your canopy itself. So you need to be able to get air movement through there in order to dry it up to mitigate any um, any risk of, of mildew in the vineyard. So so is is weeds important just because you want to keep the weeds out of your vineyard and look nice? No, it's important because you need to have air movement. So this has hit its peak. I think I don't. As Brian said, it's going to be probably a ten-minute wine, maybe a, a fifth. But at the moment, it is it is at that part, point where it is, you know, lovely and smooth. And so you were, I got to say, if I paid twelve ninety-five for this twenty years ago and tasted it today, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be upset. Like it's silky across the tongue. Beautiful. There's a, there, there's a little bit. I'm going back to bell pepper. A tiny yeah. bit, not not a lot. But as I said, 2002, that was the year that you know there seemed to be bell pepper in it. See, I'm going back to tootsie roll on the on the. See, nose. I don't get that, but on, I get on like, the nose. On the nose, not on the palate. Like, but like in the nose, it's almost like it's got sort of a, a, a caramelized cocoa note to it, um, like a little bit leathery. The yeah, it's got fruit, but the fruit the, it's got fruit, but the fruit's dried. Like mm-hmm. yeah, dried raspberries. I'm dried standing cherry. by my tootsie yeah. roll. <laughs> I, I get a taste of tootsie roll. I haven't tried a tootsie roll in here. So. You gotta, you gotta lick all the way to the center. No, I'm just kidding. I know that's, that's a tootsie pop. Tootsie pop. Yeah, yeah I've got. It's not bad. Not I mean, bad. I mean, not bad. I mean, I'm. Oh my god. I'm saying that as someone <laughs> you know still what? who does not lo- love old that's, that's old true. wine. I, like, I, Brian, thank you for opening that because very uh, much. Wasn't that fun? I, that, I so love old fun. wine. I, I'm going to just take a quick look at uh, if I can get uh, reception down. I don't. I no, don't, there's, there's no reception, no reception here. down here. I was going to tell you my oldest bottle, but I think it's an 07 or an 06. I know that you did buy a bunch of O2. Yeah, and I probably drank it by now, which is unfortunate. So yeah, this is an absolutely outstanding one. If you have any of this 2002 in your cellar, one, go and open it. And if you have a bunch of them, uh, still go open it. Did you have a? Did you make like a? Did you make like a, a, a reserve or I guess uh, we did a reserve. Your ele- what's called elevation? Then? No, we uh, elevation is a separate wine that we actually started in 2005. So okay. elevate any of the elevation wines um, are fall outside of the general list and reserve. It's right in the middle. Interesting. Okay. 
All right, so I guess it's time to wrap it up. And and Brian, this was uh, absolutely fantastic to uh, to look back uh, at, at at some more recent wines and then open up uh, something of. But spend some more time erasing the damage I've done to the podcast last year, where where it's all Chardonnay all the time. I can't say that word. What's uh, what word? I'm Andre Pru from underwinereview.ca. It's going to a good cause. <laughs> Chardonnay. Oh, twice. Uh, I'm Michael Pinkus of MichaelPinkusWineReview.com, but I would again like to thank our guest, Brian Schmidt, who is, and you can give your... Bench wine guy. Bench wine guy. I always always just type bench, and then I never remember the rest of it because it all comes up. I'm still embarrassed by bench wine guy because I I was randomly trying to find a, a name on Twitter, and... At the time, I was—I'm still not particularly well versed at Twitter or Instagram, but I was like, "What do you mean? I got to call myself an at something?" And and I struggled with that, and I just plugged it in there, never thinking that it was going to stick. And every once in a while, I think, "Damn, I really wish I picked a different name." What would you have picked instead? I don't know. I think Bench One Guy's pretty cool. Well, it would have been but I mean, that's it though. I think no matter what you would have picked, would have been cool by association because, like, seeing could've, you could've, talk about winemaking and on the tractor, like, could have just picked uh, Brian Schmidt. Brian. <laughs> at, Brian, at Brian Schmidt. So <laughs> then he would have been at like bench you, Bench Wine Guy, and Brian Schmidt on Facebook. I don't do Twitter very often. Uh, that's okay. Twitter's who, a cesspool. Who doesn't? Uh, again, Michael Pincus of Michael Pincus Wine Review. I'm at the Grape Guy and at Michael Pincus and uh, Patreon.com slash Two Guys Talking Wine. And uh, we appreciate the support when we get it, and we appreciate the support from the wineries who have let us uh, back into their homes now that COVID is allowing it to. So stay safe and take us away. All right. Cheers, Brian. Thanks, Cheers, Andre. Nice to see you again. Good to see you in the cellar. One more over there. And good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.